Hello, my fellow pod Americans. My name is Duncan, and this is Better Than Washington, the podcast that reviews presidents in a comparison-based context. We'll see who was good, who was bad, and who was the 1933 Washington Senators. You know, good enough to make the World Series, but not quite good enough to beat the New York Giants. And no, neither of those teams still exist, because time consumes everything. Today we are continuing our discussion of John Adams Jr.'s second year as the second President of the United States. In part one of our talk, we discussed the numerous whoopsie-daisies that he had to deal with regarding the economy, at least obliquely, and regarding diplomacy, not so obliquely. Now, in part two, we're going to talk about what he had to deal with regarding war and civil rights. Well, maybe we'll get to civil rights. I warned you that this year might take a long time to get through, and we're just gonna have to see how far I make it before the end of this episode. Either way, we are definitely going to have more arbitrary numbers. We will then arbitrarily crunch those numbers to decide if John Adams, arbitrarily, is better than Washington. Last time we had a chance to talk to each other, we saw just how badly John Adams, or more accurately, the people that John Adams hired, had bungled the diplomacy score by basically creating the XYZ affair. And while there were some successes in diplomacy that year, they couldn't quite make up for the failures. If we can't have a peaceful year, let's see how successful John Adams Jr. is with the war score. April 30th, 1798. John Adams Jr. is knee-deep in the XYZ affair, and a peaceful solution to the difficulties with France seem as far away as they can be without France actually declaring war on the United States, or vice versa, as some Federalists were demanding. French privateers, that is, pirates hired by France rather than the actual French Navy, have been attacking American merchant convoys, stealing ships, cargo, and even sailors. So, needless to say, the best way to stop France would be to stop them at sea, and in order to do that, the United States needed a navy. While building that navy was already in process and would take some time before fully being completed, on April 30th, the Department of the Navy is established. In my initial research about the Department of the Navy, the responsibility for the initial idea actually seems to be Secretary of War James McHenry, but that may not necessarily be a good thing for his own personal standing. See, James McHenry, from his initial run as Secretary of War in the Washington presidency, had built up a reputation for managerial incompetence. He basically knew how to be a military surgeon, but didn't necessarily know how to be a military leader. So when he shows up to John Adams' desk to complain that organizing the Navy while also trying to rebuild an army that still hasn't recovered from St. Clair's defeat during the Northwest Indian War, John Adams decides to go ahead and build an entirely different department so James McHenry can just focus on the army, that is, the land, while someone else focuses on the Navy, that is, the sea. It was really just James McHenry telling his boss that he couldn't do his own job because of how incompetent he was, and that boss deciding that it was more important to get stuff done and hire a new employee than to just fire McHenry. 
So, you know, stopped clocks being right twice a day and whatnot. It's not exactly that McHenry's a hero for coming up with the idea, but even his incompetence could have a silver lining. Now, when you build a department, you obviously need a secretary to lead it. So, on May 18th, John Adams appoints a Maryland tobacco merchant named Benjamin Stoddard as the first Secretary of the Navy. Now, whether he hit the ground running, or if Wikipedia was correct in that he didn't start until June 18th is a little hard to tell, but I honestly am choosing to believe that he hit the ground running because he had a lot to get done. The American Navy simply did not have the same number of ships that France had. And again, this was not actually the French Navy. These were pirates hired by France. These were contractors that they were fighting, not professionals. So Benjamin Stoddard had a difficult task. How in the world could he figure out a way to protect American merchant convoys when he didn't have enough ships to spread out among each convoy and definitely did not have enough ships per convoy in that approach to actually drive off the French once they started firing? Well, Benjamin Stoddard decided that approach was impossible, and he chose a different approach. An approach that somebody who plays Magic the Gathering might call Red Deck Wins. Benjamin Stoddard looked at how many ships he had and decided that the most efficient use of those ships, as well as the sailors and gunpowder upon them, was to seek out French ships in the Caribbean and just blow them to the sky. If we're being a little less facetious, the goal was more to capture and disable ships rather than necessarily sink them, but if a ship got sunk, that was pretty fine too. So his idea to attack French ships in the Caribbean rather than defensively wait for France to attack American ships anywhere in the world, in the Atlantic at least, was a key component to the entire American effort during this conflict that I'm pretending like we don't know the name of, but really at this point we're going to start calling it the Quasi-War. Because, as I was joking about last time, it's kind of a war, but nobody actually declares war, so no one was willing to call it a real war. You know, so kind of, sort of, not really war, the Quasi-War. The American effort in the Quasi-War would end up actually being a very successful one. Not to spoil future episodes, but there's a reason that we didn't have to spend the rest of the 18th century doing whatever France told us to do. So, now that the leader of the Navy was established, we obviously needed the right tools and people to follow those orders that Stoddard was throwing down the line. The first of those choices came on May 5th, when a merchant ship named Hamburg Packet was purchased by the newly minted American Navy and redesignated the USS Delaware. And the 180 men and 20 long guns on it needed a great captain to run it. So, the Delaware ended up being assigned to one Stephen Decatur Sr. If you've ever been anywhere near the Midwest or anywhere with a port city, you've probably driven past a street that was named Decatur, like Decatur Avenue or something. Stephen Decatur Sr. is one of the two possible namesakes for that, because Decatur, in addition to becoming somewhat of a hero during this war we're talking about, he was already a naval hero from his time in the volunteer navy that fought off British ships in the American Revolution. Now, the reason I say he was one of two possible namesakes is because he was also the father of Stephen Decatur Jr., Stephen Decatur Jr. was actually going to first see naval combat in the Quasi-War. 
at least according to what I was seeing online. But here, in this conflict, he will definitely get his own boat. Now, sailors are one thing, but infantry who can board other ships and successfully capture a French vessel, especially French vessels that are more heavily armed and manned than yours, requires a Marine Corps. The funny thing is the United States used to have a Marine Corps in the American Revolution, but that's actually a bit of a lie because, technically speaking, the United States did not exist yet. And that Marine Corps got disbanded when the Volunteer Navy was disbanded for weird xenophobic reasons. So, in order to help these boats and help Benjamin Stoddard win the Quasi-War, Congress established the United States Marine Corps with the Act for Establishing and Organizing a Marine Corps. A very creative name for a piece of law, if you ask me. Another veteran of the American Revolution, William Ward Burroughs I, is assigned as a major to oversee the entire Corps, which at this point is just 500 privates that they pulled from the United States Army. As a result, this ragtag force that is then trained into an official Marine Corps is the first official Marine Corps of United States history. But just because they're the first official Marine Corps doesn't mean they're the first Marine Corps in United States history. Because Marines, as a concept, had already been employed by many American merchant vessels trying to fight off the Barbary Coast pirates and now the French privateers. So this law basically just made it so those Marines, who may have already had some training as independent contractors on merchant vessels, could now organize into a more effective, more thoroughly trained unit. In order to make sure that those marines and sailors were best taken care of, on July 16, 1798, merely a week after... Or no, I'm sorry, only five days after the Marine Corps is established. <laughs> That's how counting works, Duncan. Adams signs into law an act for the relief of sick and disabled seamen, a law which created a service to provide relief to sick and disabled seamen, sailors and marines. Again, creative law naming back in the 1790s. But the reason this is cool is because it's the first ever government-operated marine hospital service, or any government health service at the federal level. So this creates a precedent in and of itself that the federal government can help people live through their own individual illnesses, something which, sadly, depending on your opinion on public health care, is something we still struggle to really get a mastery on in the United States. And then on the same day, actually, July 16th, Congress approved additional funding with the help and supplies of the British to complete several other ships of the Navy, the USS Congress, the USS Chesapeake, the USS President, the USS General Green, and the USS Adams. All of them would eventually be finished and launched in time to help finish up the Quasi-War. And all of these critically important decisions were made just in time on July 7, 1797, just a couple months after the Department of the Navy is established and just a couple days before all those laws I was talking about were passed, the Quasi-War actually begins. It began with two key American decisions. First, Congress voted to completely nullify the Treaty of Alliance with France. 
This is the treaty that France had accused America of breaking and therefore used that as the justification for privateer actions. So Congress, by voting to nullify it, basically said, hey France, we're done pretending to be your friend. When you want to talk for real, come back to the peace table. Until then, we're ready to go. But again, not an official declaration of war because France had already declared war on the rest of Europe and they were winning that war. So definitely don't want to uh, burn the bridge too much. Then, in addition to that decision, an American sloop of war, the USS Delaware we were just talking about under the command of Stephen Decatur Sr., managed to actually capture a French privateer vessel, La Croyable. I probably mispronounced that, but I probably mispronounced most things on this podcast. And as a result of this capture, La Croyable ended up becoming another ship for the United States Navy, the USS Retaliation. Now... In addition to all this stuff, there is another kind of skeevy dark side that is probably better talked about during the civil rights uh, section of this podcast, but I'm just going to bring it up now. The United States is already engaging in all these military actions, attacking French privateer vessels, passing laws to beef up the army, but this is all done with strictly Federalist support. The Democrat Republicans, who were Francophilic and very concerned, for legitimate reasons, about their civil rights being taken away, were very concerned about how the United States could ethically and, more importantly, legally, engage in military actions when no war was declared. The Democrat-Republican argument was basically that none of these actions should be constitutional because no war had been declared. The Benjamin Stoddard approach to stopping the French from attacking Americans had to take a back seat until France actually declared war or the United States declared war. So it was a massive constitutional crisis for the time, and probably should have continued to be a constitutional crisis, you know? Quick occasional reminders that maybe the president shouldn't just invade and attack anything they want. But at the time, those actions were necessary, and ultimately the argumentation went all the way up to the Supreme Court, where, after several rulings, the court would eventually rule that undeclared wars, or police, actions were totally fine uses of executive authority. There would be limits set for these actions, of course, but those limits are really easy to get around, and that's why, as recently as 2003 to, what was it, 2015? We were in Iraq. Once the quasi-war begins, there's no going back, at least not until American successes convince France to go back to the negotiation table for real. So on July 9th, just two days later, Adams signs the act to further protect the commerce of the United States into law. This law, a result of a committee formed to incorporate Adams' suggestions about protecting maritime trade, gives Adams even more teeth with which to fight the quasi-war. Even more laws! Yay! But of course it couldn't all be good stories because no war is without its costs. On November 20th, 1798, the USS Retaliation, that same boat that we just got our hands on, which was commanded by Lieutenant William Bainbridge, ended up being captured by a pair of French frigates. L'Insurgent and Volontaire. So the frigate, or not frigate, the schooner, was immediately captured and brought back over to the French side. I don't believe they renamed it La Croyable, though. I think they gave it another name just to further make history confusing. But America got back on its feet with more victories, 
because on February 9, 1799, the U.S. frigate Constellation managed to capture L'Insurgent and severely damage La Vengeance. So, like, I know I'm playing it up for, like, fun and to make it exciting, because it's very easy to make war sound exciting when you don't actually have to watch it happen. We're a history podcast, after all. We're just remembering it through rose-colored glasses, but... On this podcast, we're not a fan of war, and we don't necessarily want to celebrate people dying for what was basically a pissing match between two different countries over who owed who more money. Even so, our podcast is also about the history of the United States and whether or not presidents did a good job in protecting United States' interests and serving the people, and for a country whose half of the economy relied on maritime trade and was already hurting because of a panic, that happened right before Adams took office, being able to conduct these police actions and being able to have more successes than failures, at least from what I was able to see in researching this, means that the United States is being protected from a hostile threat. And regardless of how we want to feel about whether or not the hostile threat warrants all this bloodshed, it's hard to ignore the fact that these combats ended up protecting Americans at least American monetary interests, which, considering how little support there was from the government for just random Joe Blows who lost all their money, is really important at the time. We shouldn't just be going to war because, like, a corporation tells us to, but we should also be able to look at the people who were able to protect the United States from piracy and the interruptions of other governments with better armies, and be able to appreciate the success, and that's basically what we're doing with a war score. We could not prevent a war, but we sure as heck can make sure that we win one. But sometimes you can make a perfectly innocent mistake. Let's jump all the way back to May 18th, just like a month and a half before the quasi-war is going to begin. Thanks to Benjamin Stoddard, Stephen Decatur Sr., Stephen Decatur Jr., and all the other people who are building up the Navy, Adams is starting to feel confident that we can resist French force, an overwhelming force, which I constantly have to remind you guys that France is scary and used to be scary as well. But of course, there's always the looming threat that these police actions and constant pressuring through force to get back to the negotiation table will instead just encourage more violence, as an eye for an eye will make the whole world blind. As a reminder, the army still hasn't fully recovered from St. Clair's defeat during the Northwest Indian War during the Washington presidency. I believe the Legion of the United States had been reincorporated as individual units back into the army, but they still have more people to train than they do trained soldiers. So as a result, Adams needs somebody who can really effectively handle the army, and again, James McHenry, the Secretary of War, is not up to the task alone. Even if he was a more effective secretary, he would still need a general to help oversee his instructions. Let's jump back to July 4th. Adams needs a general to help oversee McHenry's orders and to make sure McHenry doesn't shoot himself in the foot, metaphorically speaking. Adams needed somebody with extensive experience who would also be a trusted commander to throw on people last minute. And it just so happens that Adams is still on somewhat good terms with the former president of the United States, George Washington. Naturally, Washington seems to be the perfect choice to appoint, so Adams appoints him. Again, on July 4th, because I have a weird way of talking in circles. 
But while that should have been the right idea, again, on paper, the truth is that Washington was no longer the man he used to be, if he ever was the man that people thought he used to be. Let's go back to looking at things from Georgie's perspective. At the end of his presidency, George Washington was embroiled in scandal because of his support of the Jay Treaty and other pro-British treaties, which then, in addition to a bunch of other things, led to escalating tensions with France that now put us in this very quasi-war we are trying to get ourselves out of. And as part of their angry response to abandoning their so-called French allies, Vice President Thomas Jefferson, that is current Vice President Thomas Jefferson, and James Monroe and all the other Democrat Republicans who, for historical track keeping, uh, were also known as Jeffersonian Republicans at the time, had thoroughly mudslinged George Washington and tried to ruin his public image. Washington took this as a very personal insult because, up until this point, Monroe and Jefferson had been some of his best friends. For Washington, somebody who basically had the Thanksgiving dinner approach to politics where you keep your thoughts to yourself and quietly hang out with other people because personal relationships are more important than political decisions, he felt thoroughly betrayed. So that led him to radicalize. And even though he would never formally be a Federalist, by this point in his life, he had basically dedicated himself to the full Federalist line of thinking. He actively supported the war, or quasi-war rather, and even somewhat implied that we should be willing to fully commit ourselves to a real war with France. He also not so subtly implied that William Blount, the person who led the Blount conspiracy, would probably make the world a better place if he was just mysteriously murdered one day, so we already have an ex-government official uh, considering the assassination of political dissidents. And he was also so angry at Thomas Jefferson and his precious little Democrat-Republican party that he tried to get John Marshall, the guy who was partly responsible for bungling the peace negotiations with France, to run for Congress as a representative of Virginia in order to break the Jeffersonian Republican hold on the state. These same ideas affected his ability to be a general reorganizing the army in the unfortunate event of French invasion. Sure, he helped with some of the planning of the army, but he never really got into the details of preparation and management. Instead, he focused his efforts on complaining about how badly the Democrat Republicans were going to screw up the federal government and thereby destroy the United States if their desire with peace, or with peace, if their desire for peace with France was realized. So in addition to Alexander Hamilton's warmongering, which was therefore Federalist warmongering, you also had Washington's primary contribution as commander-in-chief being another warmonger and trying to pressure Adams in the United States to actually fully declare war. Again, if I have not made my opinion on this very clear, I think that is a very bad idea. Why would you go to war against somebody who has managed to take on a 360-degree theater of war and win? But in addition to these dictatorial and warmongering leanings, George Washington was also not a great choice because he was just in bad shape. Really bad shape. His health had already been fading by the time his presidency had ended, and now, one year later, he's in even worse shape. He's not going to actually live long enough to see the end of the Quasi-War. He's going to die in about a year and a half from now. 
So as a result of his declining health and a result of his constant pressurings and complainings, he kind of puts Adams in a tough position because George Washington, in order to stay commander-in-chief, has a demand that he's not willing to negotiate on. And that demand is to have a second-in-command with almost as much power as him. And his choice for that second-in-command was Alexander Hamilton, who has been a complete pain in the butt this entire time. But Adams, at least in his own mind, needed Washington, which meant Adams needed Hamilton. So, on July 18th, 1798, with a very heavy heart and almost immediate regret, Adams appointed Alexander Hamilton to serve as the Inspector General of the United States Army. With everything else that was going on with George Washington, this effectively meant that Alexander Hamilton was the de facto leader of the United States Army. Only Adams' obstinate will to avoid war with France prevented Hamilton from using the army to cause the type of chaos he really wanted to cause. But why was Hamilton willing to be that little chaos gremlin? I shouldn't call him a little chaos gremlin. That, that actually makes it sound cute, and this was anything but cute. To recap, Alexander Hamilton had served under George Washington as the Secretary of Treasury, the first Secretary of Treasury, and his more aggressive approach to using the federal government as a tool to financially secure the nation and alleviate panics that kept popping up due to land speculation was actually a really good thing. We cannot take away the good that Alexander Hamilton did when we talk about how awfully he was now running things. But we still have to be honest about how awfully he was running things. Ever since the election of 1796, Hamilton had essentially used his legacy and prestige and just general ability to convince other people that his argument was the right way to put the entire Federalist Party under his thumb, at least at the federal level. He was actually leading this little conspiracy to effectively try and run the presidency even though he was definitely not the president. He had Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Wolcott Jr., the Secretary of War James McHenry, and the Secretary of State Timothy Pickering as his little cronies, passing off his advice as their own advice any time John Adams called a cabinet meeting. This effectively meant that John Adams was receiving intense amounts of pressure to bend to Federalist Party lines, which again, because of how much influence he had on the party, were effectively one-to-one -one with Hamilton's own desires. Basically, we had a king. I don't know how to say it any other way, in every way except for the fact that John Adams got to have the final say on things, and therefore John Adams could resist Hamilton. Like, we effectively had an unelected, not democratically chosen leader trying to run things, which is really bad. So, in addition to running the Federalist Party, and in addition to using his public platform to constantly belittle and undermine the efforts of the Democrat-Republicans and accuse them of trying to destroy the nation so that people would be too scared to vote for them, Hamilton had also been working this other angle as the one person, aside from John Adams, who was still on friendly terms with George Washington Jefferson and Monroe had already ditched Washington to instead play their political power grab. So Hamilton showing up 
and maintaining his friendship with Washington allowed him to also bend his ear to his will as well. That's part of the reason why Washington was in such a bad shape to begin with, outside of all the health stuff. It's because Hamilton had already converted him to Hamilton's cause. Now, in addition to all this stuff, Hamilton also had a personal bone to pick and a lot of anger to vent. See, way back in 1792, Democrat-Republican Congressman James Monroe, who we've kind of already mentioned, found documents implying that Hamilton was sending payments of unknown purpose to a married couple named James and Maria Reynolds. So Monroe and a couple of his other Democrat-Republican buddies tried to confront Hamilton during 1792 with that evidence to see if he was embezzling Treasury Department funds for some nefarious purpose. Instead, he told them the truth. The money was straight from his own pocketbook, and the reason he was saying the money was because he was being blackmailed. See, he had been having an affair with Maria Reynolds, and James Reynolds was basically demanding this money from him in order to not tell his wife. In a shocking moment of bipartisan respect, Monroe and the other two Democrat-Republican cronies were like, ah, I see, we apologize for inconveniencing you, and dropped all the matters. But somehow, in 1797, last year from our perspective, a so-called journalist-slash-father-of-all-tabloids named James Callender somehow actually got his hands on those original documents and published a pamphlet making the same accusations Monroe first made. So, after privately checking in with Monroe to make sure that the documentation calendar had, would maintain his integrity as a former government official, not as a person, mind you, just as a former Secretary of the Treasury, Hamilton admitted to the entire affair. It ruined his relationship with his wife, and it almost cost him his marriage, but it also prevented James Callender from having the satisfaction of exposing that secret for Hamilton. That doesn't mean that Hamilton was happy about getting the win against Calendar. He was very upset, and again, this was all motivated by politics because Calendar was a staunch Jeffersonian Republican, and his mudslinging was solely directed at Federalists in power. So, he has a chip on his shoulder, he's tripping on behind-the-scenes power, and he's managed to strong-arm John Adams into giving him real power as Inspector General of the Army. Hamilton is in a really good position to cause a lot of death and destruction, and also he can make his political opponents suffer. So, basically, we can sum up John Adams' war score by this. Great at sea, bad at land. Every appointment John Adams made for the Department of the Navy, as well as every appointment those appointments made, Benjamin Stoddard choosing who got to run the ship, and who got to train the Marines, and choosing when those ships would engage, and then those people running those ships engaging those battles effectively, basically allowed the United States to seriously compete in the quasi-war, and prevent our nation from being a sister republic to France, even if it was only in every way but name. But for all those critically important, critically good decisions he made regarding the Navy, pulling in George Washington, as good as it seemed at the time to do, ended up screwing him over because that meant he now had to deal with Hamilton 
and Hamilton's incessant warmongering and demand for blood for the remainder of the Quasi-War. And I don't think the United States would have survived the Quasi-War if it wasn't Quasi. For these reasons, we're going to settle for a positive one on the war score this year. It's still a success. I don't want to take away how well the Quasi-War is going. But Alexander Hamilton is a threat to American safety at this time, and giving him power is the last thing you should have done. And at the time that I'm recording this, though probably it'll be edited down for you, we're already at 41 minutes, so there's no way I'm going to be able to talk about civil rights. I apologize, guys, for dragging this one out, but I'm serious. Everything that could go wrong for a president did go wrong. And if we're going to judge John Adams as much as we judge George Washington, we need to have the ability to process all of those items. So next time, we're going to talk about civil rights. And if we're lucky, we'll talk about other things, too. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. Regardless, that leaves us to our favorite part of the podcast, or at least my favorite part of the podcast. Interesting history facts that are outside of everything we just talked about. On August 22, 1798, French troops tried to take advantage of the Irish Rebellion by landing troops at Kilcumen to assist the rebels. Unfortunately, that assistance isn't enough because by the time October 12th rolls around, the Battle of Tory Island will have ended, and with it, the Irish Rebellion. Also, well, between that span of time, almost evenly between because it happened in September of 1798, the first American novel of any literary significance, named Wetland, or sometimes The Transformation, an all-American tale, is published by author Charles Brockton Brown. Also on October 12th, Dom Pedro I, who will become the first ruler of the Empire of Brazil, is born. On November 29th, the War of the Second Coalition begins. So the War of the First Coalition was the first time France declared war on all of Europe. And now, just after a year from when that war ended, the second time France declared war on the rest of the world has officially started. That's it for this episode. My fellow pod Americans, thank you for listening to Better Than Washington. My name is Duncan, and I will see you all next time. Better Than Washington uses the song Americana by Mr. Smith under a fair use attribution license. You can find that song and the other works of Mr. Smith at the Free Music Archives, freemusicarchives.org. If you want to support the podcast, please give it a like and leave as many stars as you can on a review on whichever platform you're using to listen to it right now. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at ThanWashington with a capital T and a capital W. And if you really like the podcast, you can also sign up to give monthly donations at anchor.fm slash better hyphen than hyphen Washington. Also, if you ever want to fact check me, which I always encourage you to do, because I'm strictly using online resources here, the way I do that research is I start on Wikipedia to get general ideas of what's happening, and then Google for other sources to corroborate those claims resources used in this episode include the founderoftheday.com article about Benjamin Stoddard describing his general role as the first secretary of the Navy, the archives.gov files about Stoddard's nomination, as well as his uh, 
Huh, I have that resource listed twice for some reason. Oh well. And the history.navy.mil article about Benjamin Stoddard. And the millercenter.org article about Benjamin Stoddard. There, I, I basically looked at four different things just on Benjamin Stoddard. And then for the Quasi-War itself, I had the mountvernon.org article about the Quasi-War. Another article from the USS Constitution Museum. A battlefields.org article about the Quasi-War. And the, again, history.navy.mil article about the Quasi-War. So feel free to check those out and come to your own conclusions. Well, have a great day, everyone. Farewell for now.